All right, good evening, everybody. Welcome, glad you're here. Revelation chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 18 through 29. We're looking at Thyatira's tolerance. Chapter 2, verses 18 through 29, that is an attempt at a picture of Jezebel. Because many of you have heard the name Jezebel, and the name Jezebel is going to come up tonight. And a fundamental question at the outset of this message which is the fundamental question for all people for all time. And it is simply this. Who is your king? Is Jesus your king? Would you say that Jesus is my Lord, my master? What he says goes? Or would you say that you have a tough time figuring out who is actually leading your life? It's the fundamental question that you have to ask. You have to ask yourself, if you're going to be a Christian, do you truly want to follow Jesus as your king? The Bible says he is king of kings and lord of lords. And in fact, in the book of Revelation, that's going to come up near the end of the book, that he is the king. But the early church was wrestling with whether or not they would give in to pressure that was happening in the first century and it's happening today in different manifestations. And it's this type of pressure that the early church had to face. And it's something like this. The emperor claims to be the son of God. The emperor claims to be divine. When there's a festival to the emperor, you must give a sacrifice. If you live in Thyatira, Thyatira is very famous for trade guilds. If you want to belong to a trade guild, which is something like a modern union, and you want to get work, and you want to stay employed, and you want to be able to pro provide for your family, then you need to bow your knee to the Caesar or to the god of that trade guild. And so there was a lot of pressure on early Christians, there's a lot of pressure on Christians in the Middle East today and in other places, and there's pressure on modern Christians whether or not we're going to truly say, Jesus is my king, he is my Lord, he is my master in every area of my life. And what was happening in Thyatira was tolerance. Some of you might say, well, isn't tolerance a good thing? Well, to tolerance in many ways is the new religion of the U.S. Didn't you know? I think there are many people who believe that tolerance is the highest moral virtue that there can actually be out there. But actually, there's a good kind of tolerance and a bad kind of tolerance. In fact, I would say to you tonight that you will be known by what you affirm positively and what you tolerate will kind of identify who you are and what you really stand for. A man or a woman who can tolerate everything probably doesn't believe in much. Because there's a lot of things that should not be tolerated in our day and age. And for that matter, in any day and age. And one is going to come up tonight. And it is, in this case, it's a woman who exists in a congregation who has taken the pulpit in some sense and is preaching poison to God's people. And Jesus says to the church tonight, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman. And he's not saying it in a positive fashion. And I don't appreciate the fact that you are tolerating her. Some, kind of, some types of tolerance the Lord does not want us to give. Because what that means is we're giving into evil. Or we're giving into compromise. Let's pray. Father, we're going to need all the prayer we can get, all the help we can get tonight. As we continue to move through the book of Revelation, we look at the church at Thyatira we pray that you would give us ears to hear what the Spirit says to your church tonight. I want to be your man, and I know that those who are here tonight want to be those who follow you fully, Lord. Like was said of Joshua and Caleb, they followed you fully, but they were exceptions to the rule, and it's so easy, Lord, to go with the flow. And our flesh and this world and the devil pounded us, Lord. And sometimes we feel like we're losing. And I pray that tonight you would just... Ground us in our faith, Lord. Ground us in the one who saved us and called us and will empower us for every battle that we face because the battle belongs to the Lord. And we just pray that you'd guide this study tonight. Show us what you want us to see. Add and take away from what I've prepared, Lord. And speak to your people, Father. Speak to me tonight so I can be more like you. In Jesus' holy name I pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. So who is your king tonight? God said to Israel, this is a quotation from Isaiah, but it's in the book of Romans, chapter 10, verse 21. Concerning Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. 
When you trace the history of Israel, you see a people that was chosen by God, bought by God, delivered out of the land of Egypt. But their biggest problem was they didn't know how to quite give God all of their allegiance. So God warned them. He said, when you come into the land, I do not want you to duplicate the detestable practices of those people. Because here's what they do. They, they have terrible sexual ethics and they, they do things with sacrifice that is unspeakable and I don't want you to do those things. So he was prepping them and they, he prepped them over a period of 40 years. But people who were in that generation group, those who were older than 20, only two of them entered into the promised land. Think about it. Millions of people came out of Egypt. Only two went into the promised land out of millions of people. That gives you an idea that it's very easy to go with the flow in this world. In Jeremiah 2, 31 and 32, God says, O generation, heed the word of the Lord. Have I been in a wilderness to Israel or a land of thick darkness? Why do my people say we are free to roam? We will come no more to thee. Can a virgin forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number, says the Lord. And this is the, the thing. We have spiritual amnesia quite often, right? We get out there in that world and sometimes we can forget who we are and what we stand for. And as I'm going to talk about on Sunday, one of the areas of life where we get challenged is in the area of business, in the business world, it can be very difficult in corporate America or in your company or whatever it is that you do for a living to stay on the straight and narrow as a Christian. People are bending the rules all the time. They're asking for you to compromise or tolerate something that may not be according to your values. And now you have to decide when money's on the line or you're going to make this deal or not, whether you're going to be true to who you say you actually are. And to the angel, chapter 2, verse 18 of Revelation, to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, the Son of God, many scholars point to Psalm 2 for our reference here, as you'll see divine uh, attributes that paint him as the judge and the king. The Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire, that means he sees through everything. His feet are like burnished bronze, probably speaking here of purity and a combination of purity and judgment says this. So whenever you see this, says this, it's thus says the Lord. In chapter 1, verse 13, take a peek with me. It says, In the middle of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his breast with a golden girdle. His head, verse 14, chapter 1, and his hair were, were white like wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flaming or like a flame of fire. That's where the description comes from. There, notice he's called the Son of Man. And in this chapter, chapter 2, verse 18, he's called the Son of God. Jesus is Son of Man and Son of God. Son of Man is a messianic title. We've already studied it from Daniel 7. Verses 13 and 14. The Son of Man is the one who is really God. And here it describes Jesus as both Son of Man and Son of God. Or if we could put it this way, and we can because Jesus is the second person of the Holy Trinity. He is God the Son. He is the unique Son of God. God sent His only Son. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. So even though we are sons of God by adoption, Jesus is the unique Son of God by nature. He is God the Son. So we could say in verse 18, thus says the Lord. When Jesus speaks, God is speaking. So this is scripture. This is divine authoritative scripture. He addresses, notice the church at Thyatira. As we've gone through the book of Revelation, I've been trying to show you some pictures of ancient ruins and that kind of thing. And there are some ruins in Thyatira, but not a whole lot. This wasn't a terribly prominent city, but there's a, a very large section written to this area. Here's what we do know about Thyatira. It was about 30 to 40 miles southeast of Pergamum, which we looked at last Wednesday. It was situated on the south bank of the Lycus River in the north-south valley that connected the Caicos and Hermas rivers. It was a center for trade. 
Although never a large city, Thyatira was thriving in manufacturing and commercial, uh, commercial center during the New Testament times. And what they have found here, archaeologists have dug up, dug up a lot of references to trade guilds or what we might call modern day unions. And there was a trade guild for every different uh, thing that you could be involved in in terms of a profession. They had, they had trade guilds for uh, virtually everything that people did, like woolworking, linen workers, makers of outer garments, dyers, leather workers, tanners, potters, bakers, sleeve dealers, and even bronze smiths. And so everything that a person could do to make a living had a guild. You had to belong to the guild. But the problem with the guild or the trade guilds is that they were often involved with gods who had gods with a small g, and there, there was patron gods for these guilds. So for you to go to a dinner or some sort of business meeting, sometimes the god or the goddess would be involved with your particular profession, and you had to pay homage to that god. Sometimes what would happen is they would offer meat to that god, or they would uh, play, ask for a blessing from that god or goddess. And if you were a Christian in that city, and you were involved in business, all of a sudden you were put into a difficult situation. I'll give you a modern example. Let's say that you are a salesperson for a company and you are trying to get a business deal and all of a sudden the person that you are interacting with wants you to go to a strip club. Let's just be real. What they call a gentleman's club. And all of a sudden now you're faced with, hey, I've got a huge deal with this individual, but he wants to go to this location. What do I do? Do I blow the business deal and say, uh, I don't go to those kinds of places? And what are you going to expect in return? Oh, you're one of those. Goody two-shoe uh, Christian boy, huh? Are you Holy Joe? You know, you never know what's going to come back the other way. Some years ago, I was on the verge of a business deal, and I spent time in marketing and sales. And so I was dealing with Fortune 500 companies, and I would sell uh, our product to them and I had to tell my boss one day, who was, I believe at the time, a non-Christian, I, I told him, hey, this, this gal, she's the, the buyer, the buying agent for this company, she's, she's kind of coming on to me, and <laughs> it's getting a little awkward, and she's asking me to go out to places with her, and I said, what do you think? And he goes, just tell her about Jesus. <laughs> that was my, my non-Christian boss. Just tell her about Jesus, it'll be fine. In the book of Acts, we have something interesting I want to point out to you. It's Acts chapter 16. Turn over there for a second. Acts chapter 16. As the Apostle Paul went to different places and ventured into Europe, he came across this scene, which is going to be familiar to you guys, but I want you to take a look at something that happens here with a particular woman. Acts 16. Look at verse 13. Acts 16, 13. On the Sabbath day, we went outside to the, outside the gate to Riverside. So Riverside is in the Bible, just so you guys know. Oh, it says a Riverside, sorry. It's where we were supposing that we would, uh, that there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began speaking to the women who, has, who had assembled. And a certain woman named Lydia from the city of what? Thyatira, there's our church, right? A seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God was listening and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. Lydia, who we know from the book of Acts, if you turn back to Revelation chapter 2, was from this area of Thyatira, and she was probably connected to the trade guild that had to do with the dyeing of fabrics. And they say that this river that was there was ideal for, this location was ideal for this purple dye that they, they would uh, have in the area. They now call it Turkish Red, Interestingly enough, this, this area is in modern-day Turkey, and the name Thyatira connects to the idea of a castle. Some people say the, the modern vernacular or the definition of the word is like a white castle, and I think it's the, something like the castle of Thyra is how the name is uh, established. But there are scholars who, who would say they don't know exactly how the church at Thyatira was founded, but many believe, at least it's possible, that Lydia is responsible for the church at Thyatira, that she would have gone back home to her hometown and witnessed. We don't know for sure, but it is interesting to think about. She was a, probably a well-to-do woman, and uh, 
this, this place of Thyatira was definitely a business city, and so um, she's connected to that. The Son of God, the one who sees everything, addresses the church. Look at chapter 2, verse 19. He says, I know your deeds or your works, if you have an ESV, New King James, and your love and faith and service and perseverance, and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. Now, we know that when Jesus addressed the church at Ephesus, he said they had what? Left their first love. But the church at Thyatira, actually, their deeds were greater now than they were at first. When we looked at Ephesus, we said, we've got to go back and repeat the things that we did at first. That was one of the remedies when you've left your first love. You have to go, go back and do the works that you did in the beginning when you first fell in love, if you will. But Thyatira was actually doing greater things than they had done in the past. They were growing, I ask you tonight. If you were to measure your Christian walk right now and assess how you've been doing of late as opposed to years ago, are your works greater or less? Are you more effective or less effective? Are you more committed or less committed to Christ? Are you more passionate about evangelism or less passionate? These are good things to ask, and these letters make us face our walk today. We can talk about stories of yesterday, but God, I think, wants to know about today. What's your walk look like today? Notice five things. They, Jesus says, I know your works, ESV and New King James. And I think these works have to do both inside and outside the church. Your love, which is obviously the greatest thing to have. Your faith, love and faith go together. Your service, service flows out of love and faith. And your perseverance. And that the deeds, your deeds of late are greater than at first. Five things. You're working hard, you're loving people, you have faith, and your faith is going deeper, you're serving others, and you're persevering in not an easy culture to persevere, you're hanging in there. That's the assessment of the Lord of the church. Five awesome things about Thyatira, wouldn't you say? If he were to measure your life tonight or look at my life, I wonder what the list would be that he would rattle off. Okay, you're doing well here. You're doing well here. You're doing well here. We've talked about in these letters, Jesus does first commend these churches. He'll say, this is what I know you're doing. And I ask myself the question, how am I doing of late? How's my Christian walk? How's my perseverance? Well, there's a but here. <laughs> Verse 20, <laughs> the good stuff and then but. I have this against you. Here, here comes the criticism that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and she teaches and leads my bondservants, that's the word doulos, where we get the idea of the bondservant, astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. Now, there's a woman in your church, Jesus says to Thyatira, and even though you got these five things going for you, and you're working hard, and you're loving, and you've got faith, and you're serving others, and you're persevering in a difficult culture, here's something that I don't appreciate. There's a woman in your church. I don't know if her real name is Jezebel. This may be an association, just like we saw at Pergamum. There's a connection back to the teaching of Balaam, and in this case, Jezebel may be a name that the Lord has given to her. If her name is Jezebel, then that's how her parents named her, and that could be one thing. If Jesus has given her a name by which he sees her, then he calls her Jezebel. Either way, there you have it. <laughs> but here's what I would say. The New Testament is not afraid to call false teachers out by name. By name. And sometimes we're hesitant to do that. But G, uh, the Apostle Paul names Alexander the coppersmith and says he's done me harm. He names Hymenaeus and Philetus in the New Testament and says that they are teaching people that the resurrection is already taking place and they shipwreck the faith of some. The Lord Jesus takes false teaching extremely seriously. More serious than I think most modern day Christians take it. Most modern-day Christians do not want to speak out against false teachers, especially well-liked you know, well and popular false teachers, but here it is. Notice, he says, you tolerate this woman, Jezebel, and she calls herself a prophetess. 
The Lord doesn't call her a prophetess. She calls herself a prophetess. If you ever have a so-called prophetess or prophet blow into town, give you his or her business card. By the way, this is who I am. This is how much I charge per hour. You can, you can find my set of prophecies for five easy installments of $99.99 per month, right? And then you start hearing stuff, and here's the way that you measure a prophet or a prophetess, as it were. You measure them by what? The word of God. And this woman somehow had gotten a platform within this church at Thyatira, and she was telling the people of God, notice end of verse 20, my bondservants, these are true Christians, they are the servants of God, and she's teaching them to go astray, to commit acts of immorality, and to eat things sacrificed to idols. Now, I told you about the trade guilds, and here's what would happen. People would go into these trade guilds and they would go out for the evening and the, the god or goddess might be honored and then they would have dinner. And then sometimes what would happen is that this would degenerate into sexual immorality, just like a lot of maybe modern business meetings can if there's the wrong combination of people and alcohol and you name it. And so I think she was saying something like this. Oh, you guys, I know there's a lot of pressure in Thyatira, but it really doesn't matter what you do with the trade guilds. You can go and do business there. Maybe she taught a form of Gnosticism. It doesn't matter what you do with your body. Your spirit can still be right with God. You can go and party and commit sexual immorality and eat meat sacrificed to idols. No problem. You're still okay with God. <laughs> and Jesus was saying, no, you're not. You cannot live in those two worlds, Jesus would say, and serve me. It's either Jezebel or Jesus. Amen? I think Jezebel thinks she's the king. I think she thinks she can tell people, you know, this is okay, this is what you can do and not do. There are people who write books today, but their books are completely contrary to the word of God. Who are you going to go with? The author of a Johnny-come-lately book or Jesus? I'll tell you who I'm going to choose. If there's a religious movement that comes on the horizon in the 1800s, like Mormonism or Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormonism happened in around the 1820s. Jehovah's Witnesses started in around the 1880s. And they say, hey, we've reclaimed the lost gospel. It's been lost all these years, and now we got it back. I'm going to question whether or not that's real, especially if the founder's teaching is contrary to the Bible. Amen? That's how I'm going to measure a teacher or a so-called prophet. I'll tell you this. Joseph Smith said he was a prophet. When we get to Mormonism in, in, uh, the, on the 633 evenings, I will read chapter and verse to you from the mouth of the so-called prophet. If, if someone is a Mormon tonight listening to my voice, I'll just tell you, you have followed a false prophet. You say, well, how could you say that, Pastor Michael? That's offensive. I would say that because when I hear the words of that so-called prophet, they are contrary to the Bible. He taught that man can become a god. He had 30-something wives, and he was stealing uh, wives from people in his church membership. Uh, he wasn't a very godly man, to say the least. He had his so-called vision of Jesus Christ out in the woods as a teenager, and the vision doesn't even fit. He said he found some, he was led to some golden tablets, and he had to wear Ray-Bans to translate them. I'm just kidding, it wasn't Ray-Bans, it was <laughs> magical spectacles. But then we find out about Joseph Smith's past, and he was into the occult and to peep stones and, and messing with the occult. And, he, and his family was into treasure digging. And you start to put two and two together. And you say, man, this story sounds a lot like this guy's background. He was messing with the occult. His family was into treasure digging. And, and the story of the Book of Mormon is he dug up some golden tablets or plates that tell us the story of what really happened in the Americas. Not one shred of archaeological evidence for the Book of Mormon. So here's how you measure these things. Well, what was... Jezebel saying, she was saying, you're fine. If, if meat's sacrificed to idols, you're good. Oh, and sexual immorality, it's not a big deal. If, you, uh, if it's monogamy within the, the marriage relationship, one man, one woman, you don't have sex until you get married. And when you're married, that's where God honors the sexual relationship. She said, oh, no, 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 no. That's, that's not it. Actually, 
There's more freedom than that. See, she started to teach things that King Jesus says, no, you don't do. Now, sometimes people hear this and they say, is God just some killjoy in the sky trying to ruin everybody's fun? No, actually, God is the one who came up with male and female. God is the one who came up with the two shall become one flesh. These are God's ideas. All God, your creator, asks of you is to do it his way. And when you don't do it his way, and I could ask probably 50 people to come up here and give testimony, and I think we'd all say God's way is the best way. Now, it doesn't mean that if you've blown it, and we, we all have in one way or the other, that you can't be redeemed. But Jezebel was in the church from the pulpit saying, oh, it's all right. Some of these Christians around here saying that you got a chapter and verse, you got to keep the Bible. Oh, no. If the trade guild wants you to give in a little bit, it's cool. It's business. Business is business. No, 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 no. You're a Christian wherever you go. We need you to be a Christian businessman or businesswoman. Now, we find Jezebel in the book of 1 Kings and 2 Kings. Go to 1 Kings for a second. 1 Kings. So you got the first five books of Moses, Joshua, Judges, and Ruth. And then you've got 1 Kings. Just take a peek with me at a couple of verses here. Chapter 16, we find out some information about Jezebel. And I think I would lean towards this lady in, at the church of Thyatira is not actually named Jezebel. I think Jesus gave her this name because of the similarity in what she does and what this ancient woman Jezebel did. So look at 1 Kings 16, verse 30. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. 1 Kings 16, 31. And it came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ephbal, or Baal, king of the Sidonians. So she was from the area of Sidon or Sidon, or Sidon and went to serve Baal and worshipped him. So he, that is the king, erected an altar for Baal. He's a false god, ancient false god, in the house of Baal which he built in Samaria. And Ahab also made the Asherah, which was an ancient occultic type of uh, worship area. Thus Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. See, what he did was he, first of all, he should have never married Jezebel to begin with because the king should have not married a foreigner and she infiltrated into the people of Israel. And she turned the king's heart away from the living God, Yahweh or Jehovah, to Baal, this false god. And this false god, you know, he's, he shows up in all different kinds of contexts uh, for Israel. And his name is Baal, and then they put a location. So it's Baal Peor, or Baal of this location. He was showing up in every way, in different manifestations, but he was there. And he was also involved with, obviously, with the Sidonians. And so Jezebel gets involved, in, and the prophet at the time is Elijah the Tishbite. Everybody know Elijah, right? And Elijah has to confront the king, and he says, man, you've, you've troubled Israel so much so that I'll tell you what's going to happen. It's not going to rain, and it didn't rain for three years and six months at the word of Elijah, remember? And so uh, as time went on, Elijah has this uh, episode with the prophets of Baal. And uh, they, there's 450 prophets of Baal, and it seems like there's additional prophets as well. And he is the only one. And so they, they make an altar, and here's what's happening. So go over to chapter 18 and look at verse 25. So the contest is whoever answers by fire, he is the true God. So 1825, Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one ox for yourselves and prepare it first, uh, for you are many, and call on the name of your God. Put no fire under it. Then they took the ox which was given them and they prepared it and called on the name of Baal from morning until noon saying, Oh, Baal, Baal, Baal. That's my interpretation of how they said it. Baal, out of, Baal us out of this one, Baal. Answer us. But there was no voice and no one answered. And they leaped about the altar which they made. Maybe if we jump up and down, he'll hear us. 
You ever been there before? If I jump up and down, maybe I'll get my point across. And it came about at noon that Elijah mocked them. Here's biblical evidence that mocking can be okay. Praise the Lord. Verse 27, Elijah mocked them and he said, Call out with a loud voice, for he's a God. Either he's occupied or gone aside or he's on a journey or perhaps he's asleep and needs to be awakened. If you have the ESV, I think it says maybe he's out relieving himself. I'm not making this up, folks. This is the Bible. Yeah. He might be in the bathroom. He might be taking a little siesta. I don't know. Where is your God? Here is Ironclad evidence that biblical mockery sometimes is appropriate, especially to false teachers. But anyway, that's for another time. God then answers by fire. We know what happens, right? Their God doesn't answer. They start cutting themselves. The blood's running out of them. They're jumping up and down. I'm bleeding for you, Baal. He didn't answer. You know why? There is no Baal. He's a false God. He does not exist. If an idol is anything, says Paul, there's a demon behind it, but that's it. These idols that you make with your hands are not gods at all. There's only one God by nature. Baal is nothing but a phony. And so they jumped up and down, and of course God then answered by fire, and it did not go well for the prophets of Baal. In fact, they were all slaughtered that day. And word got back to Jezebel. King Ahab was having a bad day. He went home, he got into some conflicts, and he, he saw this uh, vineyard that he really wanted. It was owned by a guy named Naboth, and he said, hey, Naboth, I want to buy your vineyard, man. What, what's the price? Or, oh, well, let's, we'll trade for a better one. And Naboth said, no, this is my family inheritance. This land belongs to my family. I'm not selling you this land, and I'm not trading for this land. And so Ahab went home, and he laid down in his little bed, and he went... <laughs> The whole world's against me. They killed the prophets. The guy won't sell me the house. It's terrible. Things that are going on. And Jezebel said, oh, honey, honey, honey. Aren't you the king of Israel? Yeah. I'll tell you what. She said, I'll take care of it. So she signed some letters in Naboth's name and sealed them with his seal and got some false witnesses against Naboth, and they said Naboth cursed the king and, and so forth, and they killed the guy. And then Jezebel came home and said, Hey, Ahab, baby, I got you, I got you the vineyard. Everything's wonderful now. Oh, but it didn't go so wonderful because Elijah showed back up. Yeah, the, those youth are getting noisy up there. <laughs> and Elijah, Elijah showed back up, and gave word. And he said, look, uh, this is not going to go well. Since you did this and, and you cost him his life, it's going to cost you your life. And here's one uh, light in the story of Ahab. Ahab actually repented at that point. But Jezebel died. And the dogs, here's what the Bible says, the dogs licked up her blood. Oh, I know, but it's kind of cool. Um, <laughs> go back to Revelation have you ever watched a movie and the bad guy is just making you angry the whole movie? And then at the end of the movie, he's like hanging off a building. And the hero in the movie is holding him and you're like, don't save him, let him go, right? And if it does happen that the hero lets him go, ah! I go into my Italian mode, which is good for you. <laughs> Splat, over, thank you, next. Sorry, that's, actually, maybe it is biblical. I mean, Elijah mocking him and telling him he's going to die. Anyway, but it did happen. And in fact, not only did the wife die, <laughs> pray for me, I know. Not only did the wife die, but then it cost the sons of Ahab as well. They were killed. So even though, you know, upon his repentance, it didn't happen in his lifetime, uh, Ahab, it cost him his family Big time. And so this is the story of Jezebel, and this is the name associated with this false teacher. And she was doing the same thing back in the day 
that this Jezebel was doing to the church at Thyatira. Folks, there's nothing new under the sun. There are going to be people who come along and tell you, oh, you got to loosen up on the, the Christian ethic thing. No, no, no. The Bible is very clear, Old and New Testament. Verse 21 of chapter 2, Revelation. Jesus says, I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent. Uh, NIV says she is unwilling. She does not want to repent of what? Her immorality, which is the Greek word pornea. I just wrote in my notes, are you? Let's read it together again. She does not want to repent of her immorality. Do you? Do you remember when Jesus was at the pool of Bethesda and he said to the man who had been there, what, 38 years, do you want to get well? Now, if, if somebody had been in a condition for 38 years and, you, and they were struggling and they were saying, oh, I, I want to get the healing potion here. I, I want to get the healing remedy. And you said, do you want to get well? Do you think that, would, yeah, you might want to duck after you say that, right? But Jesus said it because I think it was a relevant question. There's some people deep down that don't want to get better. They don't. They're on our streets tonight. There's some people, if you've ever in, gotten involved with the homeless community, I'm not going to broad brush, but I'm going to say, there's some people, I've spoken to them fairly recently. One gentleman I can think in particular I said, why are you out here? You're articulate. It sounds like you, you have a trade you're good at. And he said, I decided that that's where I wanted to be. I simplified my life, and I'm just going to live out in a tent, you know, somewhere under a freeway or whatever. I'm like, really? Isn't it kind of dangerous out Oh, there's all kinds of drama out there, all kinds of drugs out there, all kinds of craziness out there. But that's where you want to be. Yep. <laughs> okay. And look, I'm not trying to be harsh, but there's some people standing by freeways with their signs. And I sometimes wonder, man, you spend so much time there. Maybe you should redirect that time towards looking for a job. I'm not trying to be harsh. Some people have legitimate, terrible stories and they need our help. But there's some people that don't want to get well. And here's the thing. Jesus says, look at verse 21, I gave her time. Here's the idea, folks. Jesus will give people a window of time to repent. And then if they don't, he can bring the hammer down. Have you ever had the hammer come down on you before? Anybody? <laughs> Anybody want to confess it? Oh, it's, it's much better if you would discipline yourself than allow the Lord to bring the board of correction to the seat of understanding, right? But Hebrews 12 says the Lord disciplines the son in whom he delights. And sometimes his discipline comes into our life. But this text implies, at least in this case, and probably in, in a wider sense, that he gives people a window of time to repent, uh, a season to repent. Sometimes we're playing with fire and the Holy Spirit saying to us, stop it, don't do that. Repent of it now. Okay, you made a mistake, but get back where you need to be. And if we keep playing with the same fire, eventually, because he loves us, he might cause something to happen in our lives. Jonah, of course, was rolling, running from the Lord, and Jonah had a custom-made fish for him, right? <laughs> Lord said, go to Nineveh, and Jonah said, made a sign, oh, no, I won't go. Oh, no, I won't go. He paid the fare. He went down. He went down. He went down. Finally, in the belly of the sea monster, three days and three nights, okay, Lord, I'll do what you've asked me to do. Boop, regurgitated prophet on the seashore. <laughs> Talking to the surfers. No tan. Acid juices from the seaweed turban going on. Started a new company after that. Behold, 22, I will cast her upon a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless 
they repent of her deeds. Wow. It's been said that the bed of pleasure for many often becomes the bed of sickness. And I think you all know what I'm talking about. There are people who go that way and they live that lifestyle and the bed of pleasure becomes a bed of sickness. And sometimes that's just the natural consequences, but here it's the Lord pronouncing a terrible judgment, a bed of suffering, NIV, is coming unless she repents and they that follow her repent of her deeds. In fact, it says, I will send them into great tribulation. Here's the idea of flips this. We talked about this. The great tribulation period is talked about a lot. Well, here's the idea of great tribulation as a judgment. I don't know if this is the great tribulation or if it's just going to be trouble in this immediate time or if it has connotations of both. But it's going to be some sort of suffering that comes from the hand of God. I heard a man being interviewed and He's connected with a very popular church today. And he was doing a Q&A time. And somebody asked him, is God ever responsible for sickness and suffering in people? And the automatic response for many is going to be no. God never causes stuff like that. But that's just simply false, you guys. It's false. Do you remember in 1 Samuel 5 when God caused the tumors to happen? Um, who was the people group? I'm trying to remember now. Philistines, right? And he caused tumors to break out on these people. And it wasn't pretty. In 1 Corinthians 11, because they were uh, going to take communion in a dishonorable fashion, they were getting drunk at the church potlucks. Jesus said that's... or. Uh, the word of God says through Paul, that's why some of you are sick and some of you have fallen asleep. Wow. You mean some conditions could come from the hand of God? Yes, Satan is sometimes involved, like in the story of Job. God allowed that. But here, he says, I'm going to send a bed of sickness her way. Now, I want to be careful to balance this. And I want to go back to this guy for a moment. So he says, no, uh, by his stripes we are healed. Isaiah 53, which is out of context. The main context of that is spiritual healing, not physical healing. There is healing in the atonement, but it's not guaranteed. The main thrust of Isaiah 53, by his wounds we are healed, is spiritually. It's being born again. It's being healed on the inside. You can cross-reference 1 Peter 2, around 23 and 24. And so he says, no, Jesus could never be responsible for that. And I'm, and I'm like, that's false. This is flat out false, and here's why. It didn't fit with his view because he's a word faith teacher. And he teaches that if you pray the right way, you should never be sick. You should always be prosperous. You should always be wealthy. And folks, this is not true. Jesus said the poor you will always have with you. There's gonna be some people, they can pray all they want. They're gonna be poor. Now, making sense of all of this is not easy, but I want to balance this by saying it doesn't mean because you get sick that God is responsible for it. we got to balance that, right? We live in a fallen world. But in some cases, God can deal with people this way. And in verse 23, it gets worse. He says, and I will kill her children. She's a spiritual mother. She has followers. So I don't think this is necessarily her literal children. But I will say this for a second, and I, I passed it by, is there are some people, there's a couple of versions of manuscripts that say, um, that imply that the Jezebel being spoken about is the pastor's wife. Now, if that is true, if that manuscript stream is correct, could you imagine the pressure in this church if she was the pastor's wife and she's teaching this stuff? And the pastor may be then someone like Ahab who's allowing his wife to take the spot that he's supposed to have authority and she's beginning to teach false teaching and he's not doing anything about it. That's what may be going on here. We don't know for sure. She may just be a woman who's part of the church. But God says, I will kill her children with pestilence. Verse 23 
And all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to his deeds. Now, um, pestilence doesn't sound like any fun. Does it sound like any fun to you guys? Uh, No. So here's the thing. I gave her a space to repent. Sometimes when people, they call uh, Bible call-in shows and they say, what's with God wiping out the Canaanites and uh, those people groups? And, And usually the response is, look, folks, for hundreds of years, these people were given a space of time to repent. And they were doing some awful things that I won't repeat here tonight, but I think you know what they are. And a space of time was given to repent, and then God's judgment falls. In fact, I would say to you, I'm surprised that God's judgment doesn't fall more frequently in the world that I look at tonight. If I had some buttons and I was sitting in heaven, (laughs) oh, baby. (laughs) I think I'd be just sending lasers out. But anyway, but God is patient. But here it's gotten serious. But I say to you, 24, the faithful remnant here, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, that of Jezebel, who have not known the deep things of Satan, we'll talk about that in a second, as they call them, I place no other burden on you. You know, Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. To the Gentiles in Acts 15, written a letter after the first council of the church, they said, look, abstain from sexual immorality and blood and things sacrificed to idols, and we put no other burden on you. Jesus Christ is not in the business of putting burdens on his people. He is in the business of removing burdens from his people. But there is a burden implied here that we need to see, and that is Thyatira has not dealt with Jezebel. So no further burden here I, pr- I place no other burden on you, end of 24, means you already got one that you got to deal with. And that is, you got to deal with Jezebel. And in what way would the church deal with her, would you say? What would be the biblical remedy for a Jezebel? She's in the church, we hear she's at a Bible study and she's teaching this stuff. What would we do as a leadership? I'll tell you what, we're gonna have a meeting with Jezebel. And we're gonna talk about some ministry. And we're going to say, if you teach that, you don't go to living truth anymore, Jezzy. <laughs> Sorry. But, <laughs> but if we're not on the same page and you're teaching the people I'm responsible to shepherd to do this stuff, you see, if we don't deal with Jezebel, you know what the fallout is? People end up sitting under her teaching and committing sin and thinking they're fine with God and think about the fallout. See, if you don't deal with sin in the camp, it ends up affecting a lot of people because a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. See, God says this for a reason. He says, look, get get that out of there so it doesn't become a cancer among my people. This is your burden. Deal with it. What's, What's church discipline? Matthew 18, 15 through 18. You go to the person. You say, is this true? Is this what you're teaching? You make sure you have your facts straight. The person says, yes, it's what I'm teaching. You say, don't teach that anymore. They say, "Uh, you can go take a hike. I'm gonna teach this. I'm convinced that this is right. You bring two or three others. You say, don't teach that anymore. You can't teach that anymore. That is sinful. The person says, no, I won't repent of that. Then you tell it to the church. And even in doctoral matters, Matthew 18 is more if you see your brother sinning. In doctrinal matters, it's much more rapid. We need to know if someone's spreading false doctrine in this fellowship. We take that seriously. Now, there's some matters that we can debate and not divide over, non-essential stuff like the timing of the rapture, etc. But when it comes to this kind of stuff, uh uh-uh. And Jesus said, this is your burden. You got to deal with this lady and deal with her now. In fact, she apparently is telling people that they can get to know the deep things of Satan. What does that mean? Well, Christians can know 
obviously some depths of God. And the Gnostics used to say that you had to have secret passwords and codes to really know the deep things of God. But there it was a teaching afoot even back in the day and even in modern times. It says, you know what, as a Christian, you're strong enough to deal with the deep things of Satan. So here's what this means. You can go into the trade guild and deal with the meat sacrifice to idols and be around all that stuff. And you're fine because you're strong enough as a Christian to to overcome it. So some people say, oh, go ahead and watch that horror movie because then you'll know what other people are experiencing and you'll be more effective as a minister. <laughs> Sorry, thanks for playing. Tell him what he did. Win, didn't win, Johnny. <laughs> That's from John the Beloved. I'm sorry, it just came out. <laughs> Sorry, you don't need... I remember some years ago, my friends were going to see a Freddy Krueger movie. All right? So I go into the theater. I'm a teenager. Going to the theater. Hey, Freddy Krueger movie. Freddy Krueger. <laughs> That's how my friends talk. Freddy Krueger movie. <laughs> so we go in. Freddy Krueger starts doing some dastardly stuff on the big screen. And the people are chanting, Freddy, Freddy, Freddy. I tell you what, my, my conscience and my heart was torn up. I'm like, how can people watch that and cheer for that? It was sick. It was sad. And people say, oh, well, you, you can, yeah, go into the fortune teller because then you can, you can find out what other people are experiencing. And then you'll be more effective. Well, there's some people that may stand outside the fortune teller's building to witness to her when she's done with her work, but don't go in there. Or don't go into, there's people who say, yeah, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go in um, to the bar, and you say, well, is that the ministry that God's calling you to? Well, yeah, I've been clean for six months. I, I think I've overcome my alcohol. No, wait, wait a minute. Or there are ministries that they witness to people coming out of pornography places. Okay, that's great. But if you have an issue there, I don't recommend that ministry for you. Because you're going to you know, put yourself in a compromising situation. So here's what the Lord says. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast, take a firm grip on it until I come. Some think it could be the second coming. Some people think it has to do with... Uh, the believer going home to be with the Lord. But here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, hold on. Hold on to me. Don't give in. Hold on to the gospel. Hold on to that faith. Hold on to that truth. Don't give in. Every day, you're going to have to be able to deal with that idea and say, I'm going to take my stand today. Don't worry about yesterday. You can't change yesterday. You can't control tomorrow. But today, take your stand. Amen? Amen. Take your stand. Everybody else is giving in. It's easy to give in. It doesn't mean you're not going to have moments of weakness as a Christian. But you can overcome through Jesus Christ. And he who overcomes, 26, and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give, this is amazing, I will give authority over the nations. And I, I believe here, folks, that all true believers will overcome. Be an overcomer, not one who succumbs to pressure, to the pressure of the world. You see, the process of, of church discipline is preparation for ruling in the age to come, says one writer. Think about it. If you have to deal with some stuff this side of heaven, like some church discipline, or you got to deal with a friend that may be going astray, well, the Bible says, overcomers, and I believe this is all Christians, who keep my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over what? Over the nations. We are going to rule and reign with Jesus for a thousand years, Revelation chapter 20, and we're going to have responsibility in the millennium. And we'll have some sort of authority in the millennium. I don't know what that's going to look like. I'm hoping for an 18-hole golf course that I can have authority over personally. But anyway, that's just me. And he says, And he shall rule them with a rod of iron or a scepter. 
As the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father. Man, this is awesome. And I will give him the morning star. One commentator says, The morning star of Venus was a symbol of sovereignty in the ancient world, and especially in Rome. Roman emperors claimed to be descended from the goddess Venus. Roman generals built temples dedicated to the star, and it was a sign carried on the standards of the Roman legions. But Christ is the true morning star. The morning star is a symbol associated with the messianic reign of Christ, the thousand-year reign of Christ. Some of us know that Lucifer, there, there's some, something in his name that may mean brightness or bright star, but the true morning star is Jesus. He is the bright and morning star, and wherever he shines, darkness must flee. Amen? Amen. Write down Numbers 24, 17, and Luke 1, 78 and 79, where it says, to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. He who has an ear, verse 29, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Father, this is right where we live, right where we have to deal with our greatest temptations is in these areas. We live in a culture that, you know, when we think about morality and we think about redefinitions of what's right and wrong, natural and unnatural, true and right and good, what's honorable in your sight, everything, everything seems to be under attack or being shunned away as old and narrow and even bigoted. But Lord, there's a way that seems right to a man, but that way in the end is the way of death. And there's a good way, there's a right way, there's a highway to holiness, there's the ancient paths that you say, we're to walk in them. The way is narrow. But Lord, thank you that you are the way, the truth and the life. And thank you that you give the power by your Holy Spirit for us to change. And change doesn't happen for most of us overnight. As we see in the book of Exodus, it happens often little by little. But I pray that we're progressing, Lord. I pray that we're moving forward as Christians that our works of late are greater than those at the first. And Lord, if there's anything that we need to do, a spiritual check on tonight, anything that you've spoken to us tonight that may be out of balance or we're heading the wrong way, Lord, just help us to own it, repent of it, and find healing in the shadow of your wings. Lord God, you are our healer. You're our help in time of need. You're the one that shows us the right way, the honorable way, the good path. May we be found faithful to it, Lord. And when we fail, may we quickly own our mistakes, get right with you and say, Lord, I, I want to improve. I want to do better. I want to walk in your ways. Make me strong. Make me more like you. Please put a covering on these precious saints, Lord. We need your covering in a world system that beats a drum that beats against our souls so often it appeals to our flesh. We confess it, Lord. It's hard, many times very difficult and challenging to live as a Christian. But we know you're gonna provide everything we need and every time we're tempted, you provide a way of escape that we may be able to bear up under it. In fact, there's language in here with the flame of fire from your eyes and the burnished bronze that takes us back to three young men who would not bow to a colossal statue and you entered into their trial. And I pray that if a sweet, dear saint is going through a trial tonight, you'll enter in, Lord, as they cry out to you, Son of God, Son of Man, help us in our weakness, Lord. We just thank you so much. I pray you'd be ministering to your people. I pray for those of you who are hearing my voice right now, just spend a few moments. Seek his face right now. Do some business with your God, with your king. Know that he loves you. He loved you so much. He knew what you were up to. He knew your struggles, and he loved you to the end. He went to the cross and demonstrated that love for you. Don't run from him. Run to him. He loves you more than you know. 
He knows your weaknesses and your struggles, and he still loves you. So lay them before him tonight and receive strength in exchange for your weakness. Father, I pray that you just be moving around this room, strengthening folks. And I just want to say, if you're not a Christian tonight, you're not sure that you know the Lord, you've not made that decision to follow him, now would be the best time. That you can fight your battles with him. Something like this, if that's you, Jesus, come into my life. I believe that you are God the Son, the Son of God. I believe you died on that cross for me. I believe that you shed your blood for me. I believe you rose from the dead to justify me. And I turn from my sin and I turn to you. I hand my life over to you. Be my king, be my Lord, be my savior, be my friend. Give me a new heart and a new start tonight. Lord, for those who have opened their hearts in the ways that only you know, may you bless them, may you strengthen them, may you meet them where they are. In Jesus' holy name I pray, amen.